Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. All right, welcome back to the Sports Media Watch podcast. This is John Lewis, joined as usual by Drew Lerner. If you have not already, please subscribe to the SMW podcast feed. You can get that on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts. Well, as usual, we're going to talk about TV ratings, a lot to talk about, NBA playoffs, NBA finals, actually, and the Stanley Cup final. But we're going to start today talking a little bit about the Live Tour and the big news that broke this afternoon, Tuesday afternoon, when we're taping the agreement between the PGA and the Live Tour to unite the two leagues and end all the litigation. A tremendous capitulation by the PGA, a lot of controversy. And what I'm going to do is bring in Drew because Drew uh, covers golf a lot more than I do and actually attended the last Live Tour event as an independent entity. I mean, it'll continue this season, but. It, that, that was the last one is the independent entity fighting the PGA tour. So Drew, I will let you come in here and uh, talk a little bit about this agreement and some of what you've observed. And we'll have a longer conversation about this later, but just a little bit off the top. Yeah. I mean, certainly a lot to unpack and, you know, more questions than answers. Um, who knows if that'll be the last, you know, live branded event. Um, that's one of the questions I'm sure we'll get an answer to in the coming months or if, you know, all these team events will be brought into one and, you know, not branded under the live umbrella. But it's funny, John, I, I was actually yesterday watching a lot of golf channel as we record this on Tuesday evening, I was watching a golf's longest day, which is the final day of us open qualifying uh, for, um, you know, the next major. Right. And I was I was writing a bunch of notes because I was going to commend golf channels uh, coverage of it. You know, they had 
all 10 sites across the United States covered with separate crews. And I, I was very impressed. They had 10 hours of coverage. And, you know, I was, I was going to have a huge, long discussion about that. And then, of course, this broke this morning and we get even more great coverage from Golf Channel, quite frankly. We get from 10 a.m. Eastern to at least 5 p.m. Eastern when I stopped watching uninterrupted, no commercials, full coverage of, of the breaking news. And I mean, like I said, there's there's a lot to unpack here. But I think the biggest thing that struck me as a media observer is how hastily this happened, right? This was clearly not something that was supposed to be released today. You know, none of the players had knowledge. It seems like there is only a very small handful of people that had knowledge of this merger actually happening. Um, and, and the big question is, why now? Obviously, you know, the, the reason they probably released the information today was there's likely going to be a leak and they wanted to get ahead of that. But why would the PGA Tour decide to merge with Liv at this moment in time when it seems like Liv's floundering, they're not getting good TV ratings, they're kind of hemorrhaging money? Um, and, you know, there's a few answers to that question, which I'm sure we'll get to in the longer discussion. You know, there's ongoing litigation that could have led to a discovery process. Um, some people think the that the PGA Tour's new format with the elevated events and, and the larger purses was a bit unsustainable. Maybe sponsors weren't willing to front that much money to, to continue in partnership with a PGA Tour that didn't, frankly, have every one of the best golfers in the world. So. A uh, lot of implications on that front, but um, I know we have to get to viewership. I'll, I'll let you weigh in a little bit on on the live stuff off the top, and then we'll we'll get, come back to it later in this uh, in this episode. Yeah, a lot to talk about on that front. Uh, I'll just note what you said, which is that the live tour doesn't really have a whole lot of you know leverage right now, and I know that Brooks Koepka winning the PGA Championship was a big deal, but I mean. It just didn't seem like there was any real urgency from a business perspective for the PGA Tour to do this. And I think there's a lot of disappointed people. You know, the PGA made the decision to talk about this in moral terms. And they didn't have to do that because I don't think that was ever their motivation. I don't really. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone in the PGA Tour really cared about, you know, uh, Khashoggi about 9-11, about any of that. I think that was all complete misdirection. They only cared about the element of, you know, these players breaking off from the league and, and jeopardizing their money and having a real challenge. But they chose to talk about it in moral terms. So they have created for themselves a circumstance where now everyone else is going to be talking about the tour in those moral terms. This is the PGA Tour. This is professional golf. This is golf generally. Golf has never been and will never be a sport that stands for anything moral. There's there's no history of of great activism, right? You know, so uh, it was completely out of character for the PGA to suddenly decide they cared about all these topics and only created more trouble for themselves when they, I suppose, inevitably uh, caved in. Although it is odd that they caved and the Live Tour didn't, because I, I don't I don't think that needed to happen. Yeah, and uh, you know, I'll just leave on this note um, before we get back to it later in the episode. Is I, I think the big winner here today is Chris Licht of CNN. <laughs> he he is no longer the most hated CEO 
of an American corporation at this moment. So congratulations, Chris Licht. Uh, but let's start with the, the viewership talk, John. Um, I know NBA ratings might have been a bit higher than we predicted last week. Um, looks like the year over year is pretty similar. Why don't you give us the full rundown? Yeah, the NBA uh, has to be nothing but pleased. This is a Heat Nuggets NBA Finals. It's the worst case scenario. Really, out of the entire 16 teams in the playoffs, I think this is the worst case matchup. Maybe Bucks Nuggets would have been lower. And yet, the viewership is identical to last year when you had Steph Curry versus the Boston Celtics. So I think if you're the NBA, you have to be very pleased because it is, again, it's it's not a great matchup from a ratings perspective. And last year was Steph Curry and the Boston Celtics. That's golden. Everybody thought last year that that finals was going to do really, really well. Instead, it uh, really underperformed. That actually has given the NBA some good PR this year. I don't really think Heat Nuggets is overperforming. I think Heat Nuggets is doing about as well as this kind of matchup should do in the month of June, right? This is an NBA Finals. An NBA Finals, particularly in the out-of-home era, really shouldn't be getting anything lower than about 11 million. The real story here is that last year's Finals really, really underperformed. And at the time, I think the perception was, wow, I guess this is where the NBA's ceiling is now. But what we're finding out a year later, no, that's where the NBA's floor is. Because Heat Nuggets is the floor of what the NBA can do in the finals. And it's doing exactly the same as Warrior Celtics did a year ago. So last year, the thought was, okay, I guess this is the best the NBA can do post-COVID. Not so. Last year's series just really, really underperformed, just like the conference finals did uh, in, in last year uh, with Mavs, Warriors, and Celtics Heat. I don't know what it was about last year's title run with the Warriors, but they did not draw the way that they did in that regular season or this NBA playoffs that just passed. They were a much bigger draw this year than last, but uh, I, I think that has more to do with it. And I'm not trying to take credit away. You know how extra sensitive Mike Malone is, uh, not that he listens to this podcast, but I'm sure he's always on the lookout for any perceived slights. You know, I, I do think that uh, that last year's finals doing pretty mediocre numbers, pretty poor numbers given the matchup is uh, one of the reasons why this year's series looks so good. Yeah, to me, and, and you laid it out pretty well, that um, this does seem like now the, the ratings floor for the NBA. And the big question is, well, why did last year's matchup not rate higher? And to me, it kind of gets at, is the NBA failing to reach a certain segment of casual viewers, right? Because... Obviously, there's going to be casual viewers that tune in just for the finals or just for, you know, the last two rounds of the playoffs. But, you know, you would think that some of their brand names like Steph Curry or a brand name team like the Boston Celtics would actually raise that ceiling. And it didn't seem to last year. Right. So I wonder if, you know, there's a segment of casual viewers that has kind of tuned out the NBA and in spite of any matchup, unless it's literally like LeBron James versus Steph Curry, which we saw in, in the second round this year, um, just won't, won't even tune in. I think there is something to that. You know, this playoffs has been a tremendous draw for the NBA. 
with the finals holding up so well, pretty much a guarantee now this will be the most watched playoffs in five years. If it goes seven, it'll be the most watched in seven years. It's been a tremendous success, but a lot had to go right. You had to have the Warriors and Lakers in the playoffs at the same time. They both went deep in the first round, six, seven games, Golden State, a seven-game first-round series for the first time since 2014. You had to have the Warriors and Lakers play each other in the second round, and the Celtics play the Sixers in the second round and go seven. Lakers-Warriors, by the way, go six. Didn't go seven, but it went six. Um, you know, And then you have a, a terrible conference finals that gets saved at the last minute by Boston mounting an ultimately futile comeback from 3-0 down, but that narrative boosting that Game 7 audience to uh, one of the best the NBA's had outside of the finals in 20-plus years. So a lot had to go right. And, you know, this finals is doing, again, it's doing well, but I think what you've kind of hit on is, certainly for the finals, it's entirely possible that we're not talking about ceiling or floor here, that this is just what the NBA audience is going to be, and that it'll be that for a good matchup or a bad matchup, but you're going to have a segment of 11 or 12 or so million viewers who are going to tune in every year, regardless of who's playing, and that the lowest of lows, maybe you don't have to deal with that anymore, which is good, but the highest of highs, you're not going to get back there either. That, that, I think that's possible. I think it's too early to make that claim, but this is going to be a fourth straight finals where the average rating is below a seven, unless it goes seven. But barring that, it'll be the fourth straight finals where the average rating is below a seven. It'll be the four straight finals where you have, you know, viewership that w is below Warriors Raptors in 2019. Again, there's easy explanations for that because you obviously the two COVID years, you know, you can just throw those out as far as ratings go. Uh, and then this year is just a bad matchup. And then last year, I mean, how do you explain last year? I mean, last year's finals is just inexplicable from a ratings perspective. I don't know how you explain it. Yeah, I, I think that that there is certainly some some legs on the theory that NBA finals viewership is just very uh, inelastic, if we want to use like an economics term, right? That there's really just not a wide band that viewership will fall within anymore because they're, they are failing to reach some segment of the population. Let's not forget, way fewer people are watching TV. Yeah, th That's just a huge aspect of it. Way fewer people are watching TV. And when way fewer people are watching TV, particularly when linear TV and, you know, I mean, ABC is obviously broadcast television, but not a ton of people out there with antennas, right? So if you cut the cable cord, you probably don't have ABC either, okay? When you consider that most of the people who cut the cord didn't care about sports, if they did, they wouldn't have cut the cord. Those are the viewers that make the NBA finals get to 20 million viewers. Those are the people, they never watch a game all season long. They might not even know the finals are on, but it's Sunday night. They usually watch ABC. They tune to ABC. Hey, there's an NBA game. I guess I'll stick around and watch it. That's a lot of the sports viewing audience. Those people aren't even available anymore to you know, stumble upon an NBA game. They don't have cable. They don't have linear TV. So you know, the reality of the matter is, you're not going to get back to, you know, game seven of the finals at 31 million in 2016. Then again, it is the out-of-home era, right? We see all these incredible highs, but you'll notice all the incredible highs that we've seen outside of the NFL, they're all within a relative range, right? They're the highest first round, highest second round. You know, you can get to a high for a first round or second round game or a conference final game and still not get to 
the kind of 20 million audience that the NBA was getting uh, in the in the Cavs Warriors days. So taking these numbers in context, is this good news for the NBA? Would you or do you think the NBA considers this a good thing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Uh, I, I I know that among people with skin in the game, there was an expectation that it was going to be lucky to get to 10 million. Instead, you're on par with Cavs uh, with uh, Celtics Warriors. Hey, Celtics Warriors underperformed last year, but it's still Celtics Warriors. The expectation, if you have Celtics Warriors and then the next year you have Heat Nuggets, is that you will have fewer viewers for Heat Nuggets and substantially fewer. So the fact that, I mean, I, I was expecting from game one something a lot closer to Buck Suns, which started about 8.7 million, I think, for game one. So the fact that not only did it avoid that, kind of a, a a number but hey a six rating isn't great historically but a six rating is a heck of a lot better than a four or a five which is where the finals was for those two covid seasons so i mean given the matchup i think you have to be pleased with it i will say just uh, to the point about the nba being inelastic i don't think the numbers would be much better if it had been celtics nuggets although you never know because Boston would have come back from four up from three zero down, would have had some momentum there. But uh, I, I think if it's not LeBron versus Steph or something like that, you're just not going to get to that point at this uh, at this point. Yeah. Do, do you think that um, the Heat Celtics series going the distance kind of helped build some momentum and and ultimately kind of avoided a more disastrous viewership number, or do you think that? Maybe if if that series had just ended in a sweep and it was Heat Nuggets, um, you know, nine days after the conclusion of that sweep, we would have gotten a similar number that uh, what we did game one. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, getting to game seven and, and having that storyline of the 3-0 comeback was uh, a, a big factor. And uh, had Miami swept and you had eight days, nine days off where the NBA would have fallen off the face of the earth, nobody would have been paying attention. Uh, I think that was a, a a significant, you know, reason why the numbers are as healthy as they are. I will note one of the interesting quirks uh, I talked before about just the the, the die off really of linear TV in in terms of viewership. Uh, game two of the finals had a three point two rating in adults eighteen to thirty four, and uh, that's up three percent from last year and the highest for game two since twenty nineteen. But the real story is that it had a 45 share. So that means 45% of that demo that was watching TV was watching the game. But that also tells you something else. It tells you that 3.2% of 18 to 34 is nearly half of the viewing that night. And, and it's going to be impossible to get to where the NBA used to be, where any of these leagues used to be, uh, with that being the case. It is really a testament to the tremendous strength of the NFL and this tremendous strength of the NFL out of home audience. Cause you know, out of home is affecting everything, but I think for the NFL, because of the communal aspect, you know, that, that it is especially helped. I mean, it's a testament to the NFL that its numbers are holding up as well as they are, because if 3.2% of 18 to 34 is 45% of 18 to 34s that are actually watching TV, that's crazy. 
yeah, that, that's a great point. And, you know, that that's a really scary reality for the television executives yeah. out there, right? I mean, that is minuscule for such a big demographic and a demographic that advertisers see as valuable. Mm-hmm. So that, that that is a very, very um, astute point. Okay, John, moving on to the Stanley Cup Finals. We had two games, both simulcast across TNT, TBS, and True TV. Um, game one averaged 2.75 million. Game two averaged 2.44 million. That's a pretty sizable drop off year over year. Of course, last year was the first year of the new NHL media rights deals, and those games were on ABC. So you have a little bit of the broadcast bump, these games on cable. So you can't really expect as big of a number. But what was your top line takeaways from NHL viewership? Well, I mean, it is what it is. It's not a good series. With Heat Nuggets, you know, you want, I mean, it's not a great series from a TV perspective, but you are talking about a two-time MVP in Jokic. You are talking about a team in the Heat went to the finals in the bubble, very long tradition of winning. Now, of course, Vegas has been to a cup final fairly recently, but, you know, neither of these teams have much tradition. Obviously, with the NHL, you're not ever really dealing with big, above the fold stars you know it is what it is uh and the series isn't good heat nuggets game one was terrible but game two was very close well game one in the nhl was somewhat close uh you know i actually fell asleep honestly no offense but you know it's it's a lot of months now having to stay up late for these games i fell asleep with it 2-2 in game one and it was when i went to when i when i fell asleep it seemed like it was a good game I wanted to try to stay awake for it. Good thing I didn't because the third period was a blowout. It was, you know, five to two. And last night, Monday night was even worse, seven to two. The games have to be good. If the games aren't good, you're not going to be able to get any good numbers out of them. And uh, for the NHL, I, I just think chalk it up to a bad year and move on. Yeah. I mean, I don't have too much to add to that really. Um, you know, we discussed this last week that the games are going to have to be enticing if, if they want viewership um, to be what it was last season um, for, for this series really just does not have much intrigue on paper. Um, I know that, you know, the star player for the Florida Panthers, uh, Kachuk, you know, hasn't been playing particularly well. That's quite frankly, as just a casual viewer of the Stanley cup playoffs, the only storyline I knew coming into this series. Let's talk about how um, game one compared to other Stanley Cup final game one viewership on cable networks. Um, So it did actually place second on that list behind Carolina and Detroit in 2002, which drew just over 4 million. Is it anything to read into that, you know, amongst the game ones that appeared on cable that this game drew more? No, I mean, not really. It's such a small sample size. Uh, You know, a lot of really highly rated series started with game one on NBC. All the Blackhawks series did. And those are the the big hits. So I I wouldn't read too much into that, but it is true. Most watched game one on cable in 21 years. When you've got a year like this one, you find the superlatives where you can. And, uh, you know, it it is what it is. I, I actually don't think it's impressive, but... It's nonetheless true. Most watched in 21 years on cable. It's the seventh in 21 years on cable. And a lot of those are 
you know, you'll notice some of the worst series, like your Ottawa Anaheims, your Edmonton, basically any time a Canadian team made it, game one was on cable. Uh, so, I mean, it's probably the only positive story that's going to come out of this cup final for Turner from a ratings perspective, because the ratings, you know, especially if it goes along, when you get to game four, five, six, and seven, and those are, well, you know, if they get to game seven, they'll be doing backflips. But you get later in the series, you're talking about games that haven't aired on cable in a long time. The last time any game after game four aired on cable was 1999. So those comparisons are going to be really unflattering. Do you think there's any regret from the NHL for agreeing to a deal where they're putting their most valuable product on cable every other year? No, because I think Turner's worked out really well for them. I mean, maybe actually I said no, but you know, the, the, the situation with cable is getting really dire. I don't know if you want to hitch your wagon to cable right now. And I think maybe turn, uh, the NHL would have been better off doing kind of an old school NBA deal where NBC, which was their incumbent broadcaster, keeps all the weekend games. And then Turner has all the weeknight games and most of the playoffs. I mean, that might have been a better way to do it because you need to have, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't want to be having my championship games on cable in 2027. I think when you get to that 2027 cup final, having all these games on cable is going to be really noticeable. So, you know, this might actually be the only year that it's even really workable to have the whole series on cable, given the trajectory. But I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't want to be in that. I'll put it this way. I don't think the next deal, which is coming up sooner than people think, I don't think the next deal is going to include a cup final that is exclusive to cable. Yeah, that that seems like a bit of a misstep, um, in my opinion, from the NHL, uh, especially when you think four years down the line, when where where's cable going to be at that yep. point? Um, we're already hemorrhaging viewers. Uh, that's yeah, that that looks like it could be um, cause for panic in the NHL league office. Before we get back to live golf, are there any other viewership stories you want to cover here? Pretty sleepy weekend, uh, ultimately, outside of the NBA and hockey. Uh, probably the most interesting rating story for a couple of reasons is the Memorial had a nice bounce-back number over the weekend, 1.9 rating, 3.1 million viewers on CBS, up considerably from last year when it was just a 1.4 and 2.3 million. It brings us back to the first topic of the day, which is the PGA and Live. I don't imagine for a second that this agreement that was reached Tuesday had anything to do with ratings. But it is the case that the PGA ratings had kind of leveled off a bit, very strong start to the season, and then kind of fading with time. Uh, that included the PGA Championship a, a, a week ago, or maybe two weeks ago. I'm not sure. I guess it was two weeks ago that the PGA Championship happened. But, you know, I, I don't think ratings had anything to do with it. The reality of the matter is, though, that uh, if you're the PGA Tour, you want those stars back there. And, and maybe it did have something to do with it. Maybe not having Mickelson and Kepka and all those big names, maybe that is something that kind of drove a certain amount of anxiety uh, in PGA offices to strike a deal that 
I mean, again, I, I don't think there was any urgency from a financial standpoint to strike. Um, that's, yeah, that that's debatable. And, you know, I'm sure there was some sort of anxiety and there's, you know, reports and murmurs that maybe that had played a role in things. But, um, you know, this new deal kind of makes the PGA insular to the ratings, you know, in the long term, because now they have the financial backing of the PIF and Saudi Arabia and the governor of the PIF, Yasir al-Rumayan, I hope I said his name right, uh, has shown he's incredibly committed to having influence over the sport of golf globally, right? So I don't think ratings really are going to play much of a factor in much of the PGA Tour's decision-making from here on out, right? They have the safety net of lots and lots of money I mean, obviously, they're still, you know, they said in the press release today that they are going to be a for-profit entity, which until recently was not the case, right? Um, you know, they're registered as a 501c6. They do not pay taxes up until a few years ago, I believe. Maybe not, don't quote me on this, but they were considered a nonprofit. So, um, you know, the PJ has always been very um, upfront about all their charitable work and how they, you know, do all this work for the communities that the tournaments are in and all of that. Well, I mean, that kind of goes out the window now, right? They're, they're in the business of making their players a lot of money. And um, it, it seems like that's going to happen to kind of get back to a media, the media implications of this. Um, there, there will be, um, implications with the broadcast partners they were all left in the dark on this and it's no guarantee that cbs nbc and espn wanted to do business with the saudi arabian government right um there's going to be a lot of smoothing over that's just one of many things that that will come of this but if we want to focus from a broadcast media perspective that will be one of the big stories yeah I, I'm very curious to know because nobody wanted to touch, live with a 10-foot pole, not even Fox. You know, I said on uh, on the podcast before, I always thought Fox Business was the perfect place for live, given their political leanings, given the fact that nobody watches Fox Business. Those were things that, I mean, I thought it was kind of a match made in heaven. Never happened. Fox wasn't interested. Well, at least, well, we don't know because there was that one report that Fox was going to do a deal and didn't go anywhere. But, you know... Do I think CBS and NBC are going to say we want out? No, of course not. But I definitely think there's going to have to be some smoothing over because I think there's going to be some hurt feelings, smoothing over with the players, smoothing over with the broadcasters. A lot of people made opposing live kind of, a, you know, part of their identity, right? It was a moral stance for a lot of people, but again, you know, certainly at the PGA level overall, I think it was completely disingenuous. I'm not going to say that Brandel Shambly was being disingenuous. I don't know. Maybe he uh, feels truly the way that he did. And I mean, if he does, he's going to have to consider whether he wants to continue to be associated with the tour. There's other people who are going to have to make that decision. A lot of people wrote checks now that they're going to have to cash. Yeah, Shambly was actually on Golf Channel earlier Tuesday here um, saying that this was the saddest day in, in professional golf history. So... We obviously know where he stands on this. I, I do think it's important to 
put this in perspective that, you know, prior to live becoming its own entity and being a direct competitor to the PGA tour, a lot of this Saudi Gulf stuff was framed in an additive way that this was going to be a product that was additive to the PGA tour schedule rather than something that would directly compete. Right. And I think that's ultimately where this will end up. Um, I know I mentioned in the piece that I wrote earlier today on this, that um, there's kind of a perfect part of the PGA tour schedule where they could play large purse, um, limited field team events. And that would be during the fall swing season, which the PGA already kind of set aside, at least this year, this was going to be the first year for, you know, guys on the lower end of the FedEx cup rankings and up and commerce from the corn Ferry tour to kind of battle it out and, and earn a PGA tour card. Who knows if any of that will happen now, right? I mean, all of the questions about which players will get status where are, are totally up in the air. And I wouldn't be surprised if they just kind of tore the entire schedule as we know it down. But all of those things are going to have broadcast implications. We're going to have probably a lot of new events that are probably going to be packaged and sold to the broadcast partners in different deals than they, they currently have, right? The other thing I quickly want to touch on um, when it comes to the broadcast partners is the CW, right? Obviously, the Live Tour and, and CW agreed to a, a broadcast deal um, before the second Live season. And it's possible at the end of all of this, depending on how that contract was written, that the CW makes out really well here and somehow gets to air some really meaningful golf tournaments. Do I expect that to happen? Probably not. Um, I'm sure there's outs in, in those contracts that, that will prevent any, any sort of meaningful golf from ever being played on that channel. But we do know, um, confirmed from a source within Live Golf earlier today to us, that they think it's business as usual for, for the rest of um, this current Live season. So we will still see some Live broadcasts on the CW, but if there's a future for, for Live in the CW, that's, that's very much up in the air. Yeah. And, you know, look, uh, is there a future for, you know, is there a future for sports on the CW at all? It's a worthwhile question. Um, yeah. You know, they're not, you know, Scripps has gotten off to a better start on that front than Next Star, getting the WNBA and getting the Golden Knights. Next Star just has a live. Uh, you know, I don't know. And, you know, Scripps already had the National Spelling Bee. These are not, you know, big ticket events, but certainly you're talking about three things that, I mean, certainly as far as the Golden Knights go, I mean, getting into the local space as well. WNBA is, you know, obviously not a big ratings driver, but it's a major league brand. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think Nexstar has some things to think about. Yeah, I mean, certainly a lot to discuss when it comes to the the possibility of, you know, smaller properties on those netlets because of the the distribution that they have. Um, but just getting back to the Live Tour PGA Tour merger for for just a second. Um, I mean, I know I said just a few minutes ago that the the PGA Tour is now pretty insular to to ratings conversations because of just the sheer amount of funding that they'll have and 
they're really, let's be honest, they're not going to be beholden to the networks anymore for, for their money and the sponsors for their money. They're going to be beholden to the PIF. But I think one thing is certain is that this is going to be good for the golf television product. You know, you have all the players playing under one umbrella. Now there's some history between guys that defected, guys that stayed loyal. I mean, we know that that probably didn't drive ratings in, in the majors this past year, but maybe when they're playing on the same tour, that'll form some natural rivalries. Who knows? And they did say in the press release that there will be some asset aspect of a team event or team events um, in the in the new league. So uh, that's a lot of very intriguing stuff to you know, you know, for television golf. And, and I think for golf fans, they will be served very well in this new era of, of, of emerged tour. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, I wonder if there are people who are going to tune out, you know, people love to talk about how I'm never going to watch it again. You know, I'm, I'm going to boycott this thing that I used to like for the rest of my life because they made a political stance I didn't agree with. And, uh, you know, in this particular case, Given all the emotions involved, everything that's been said, I don't see why there wouldn't be at least a few viewers who might think about not watching the PGA Tour anymore. I mean, do I really think it's going to happen? No, not really. But I think it's something to that is in the realm of possibility, even if unlikely. Yeah, certainly, especially just given how divisive it has been over the last year and a half. I mean that was the PGA tours calling card was we are the morally correct golf tour. Right. And I mean, sure. They still had most of the best golfers in the world and, you know, sure. They still had all the history and pedigree that comes with playing on the PGA tour. But I mean, there, there's going to be a lot of backtracking and, and pointing of fingers when it comes to the PGA tours messaging and communications over the last 18 months. Well, you know, morally correct golf tour is kind of an oxymoron anyway, right? Yeah. Uh, but a lot of these companies will take moral stances that are uh, uh, very quickly forgotten if the money is is right. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it wouldn't shock me if the Saudis bought into a, a lot of different things. I mean, you know, I'm not going to name anything specifically, but there are certainly, you know, smaller sports enterprises out there that could definitely use that money and uh, would probably gladly turn their back on any moral stance they'd ever taken if if the price was high enough. Exactly. That That is where this conversation leads to, right? I mean, we've golf's not the only sport that Saudi Arabia has made a very clear push to invest in. I mean, Formula One has heavy Saudi Arabian influence and obviously professional soccer uh just like a few days ago um the the piff put billions of dollars into four of their domestic soccer teams and now they're buying players for eight nine figure contracts to to come play in saudi arabia and not to mention they they own teams in the premier league so um saudi arabia money is all over and, and what who's to say that you know down the line we don't see them want to get heavily invested in a league like the NBA or even the NFL, right? You know, well, there's a lot of value. Yeah, they, they aren't going to do that. Yeah, those two leagues are very well set. I'm thinking more along the lines of, you know, an NWSL. And, Certainly. You yeah. know, that, that to me, 
I'd be very intrigued if the situation ever arose, whether the moral stances that have been taken by those types of leaks would be able to withstand the prospect of that much money. Well, John, there's already been steps from some of the bigger leagues to allow for partial ownership of teams from some of these international wealth funds, right? Saudi Arabian wealth funds specifically. So they might not take a controlling stake or even as influential a stake as we see um, with the PGA Tour merger, which albeit they do seem to be financing, they will not have control of the board, which is something that's important to mention. Um, the PGA Tour will, will have the controlling voting shares. But there certainly will be tangible uh, influence from Saudi Arabia, even, even in some of our major sports. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing, too, is with the NBA and NFL, those aren't single entity leagues or, you know, anything like that. Even if the Saudis were to get a team, which, you know, that'd be something. I, I don't think there'd be any opposition among NBA or NFL owners to that. Uh, you know, certainly we know the NBA's relationship with China, yada, yada, yada. But, uh, you know, I, I think with a single entity structure, a smaller league, that is kind of where I think you would see that that influence greatest. You know, it's hard to disentangle where all of this money comes from yeah. and, and what, what funds these huge entertainment enterprises that, that we all love to follow. So this is probably inevitable. And it it really shows the lack of foresight from Jay Monahan and the rest of the PGA tour as to how they went about their messaging. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is what it is. A lot of talk about, uh, about golf, a sport that uh, in the post Tiger Woods era, who knows what the future holds anyway. And we still haven't heard from the big cat himself. So well, that will be very interesting to see what side of this he comes down on. Before we had all of this breaking news today in the golf world, there was one other significant golf story over the weekend, and that's uh, newly crowned phenom Rose Zhang, the uh, second-year Stanford golfer who made her pro debut this past week on the LPGA Tour and actually won. She's the first LPGA Tour golfer to win in her debut in over 70 years. She has all the makings of a superstar. Um, do you think this has a possibility of moving the needle for the LPGA? Yeah, I think so. Uh, not immediately, but if she does this at the U.S. Women's Open, she can repeat it. Uh, certainly, you'll see some some uh, interest start to build. Did not quite happen for her first tournament. I don't know what the comparable number was last year. May, may very well have been up. But uh, 279,000 viewers... Nothing too special for that Sunday, but uh, I think with time, especially if she can build on it, right? If if she is is able to be a contender at the U.S. Women's Open, really start to make a name for herself. You know, women's golf had one star really the last twenty years. Michelle Wee. Uh, women's golf since Annika Sorenstam, it's only really been Michelle Wee. Uh, Rose Zhang has the potential to be a big deal for a sport that compare women's golf to women's basketball. I mean, you can't turn on your TV without Sue Bird, Candace Parker, uh, you know, even some of the lower profile stars, uh, you know, Neke Obumake, uh, Rike Gumbawale, 
they are all in ads all the time. And uh, I mean, who is that one? Like uh, Wayne Gretzky? Does Wayne Gretzky have a daughter? Paulina? Uh, that, that's, yeah, Paulina Gretzky. That's Dustin Johnson's wife. So she's not, she doesn't actually play golf. She does not play golf. Okay. She's just the wife of a professional golfer. Right. As far as I know, I don't think she's a golfer and, in, in any and, professional sense, at least. Okay. So who is Paige Spiriniak? Uh, yes. Paige Spiriniak. Yeah. Yeah. He's there's a, a big, she, well, yes, she's not a professional golfer either though. She's, she's an influencer. I guess you could say there's a big, um, I forget what publication it was in, but they just did a, uh, did a profile of her she was a college golfer and um has since kind of turned into um you know a social media superstar you could say she's i think one of the biggest or if if not the biggest person in golf media i think she's the the biggest golfer on social media in terms of impressions but still not an lpga golfer right but i mean that's kind of the point I could name a lot of basketball players who play basketball. When you think of women's golf, it's either people who haven't been good in 10 years or really aren't playing anymore, or people who are not really known for their golf. So uh, we'll see. It, it will be a very big deal if they can get somebody out there who is actually known for playing golf. Yeah, and you know, to be fair to the LPGA, they, they do have a couple of kind of rising stars, I guess. And Nellie Corda has oh, been yeah. a big one and, and uh, Lexi Thompson. So they do have a, a small group of, um, you know, more marketable brands um, that, that they can build around. And, and obviously Rose Zhang would be a huge addition to that group if she does, in fact, pan out. And, you know, we're, we're so good as a society at, you know, putting these outrageous expectations on our young athletes. So Let's let's give them the benefit of the doubt if they uh, actually pan out or not. Yeah. Um, so uh, wrapping with another women's sport, softball. Uh, pretty solid numbers over the weekend on ABC. Looks like both ABC windows are up from last year. Uh, I will say Oklahoma-Florida State is an attractive matchup. You have two of the top programs, right? Anytime you get these two programs in any sport, it's going to be something people want to watch. Oklahoma with their uh, tremendous success recently, Florida State, a fairly recent champion. Traditional teams, you just need to have good games. Oklahoma, so far in this tournament, has played competitive games that went down to the wire. That's really all you need. And uh, I think you could see some pretty good numbers, but the future of this event needs to be uh, a little bit different. Game one is going to be opposite game three of the NBA Finals. Game three, if it happens, will be opposite game four of the NBA Finals. Game two, sandwiched between. Lesser competition, but still going up against game three of the Stanley Cup Final. All three games going up against the NBA or NHL Finals. Next year, game one, ABC, Saturday afternoon. Game two, ABC, Sunday afternoon. Game three, Monday night on ESPN. Or you know what? Let's, let's start scheduling for TV. Game three, Tuesday night in ESPN, so you avoid Game 5 of the NBA Finals. It's not the end of the world to have a day off between Game 2 and Game 3. Uh, maybe there's some kind of argument about how it'll hurt attendance or something. I don't know, but you're not maximizing your audience the way that they have it now. 
put game one on ABC uh, Saturday afternoon, game two on ABC Sunday afternoon, and then game three, figure out where you want to put it, try to avoid the NBA finals. Uh, and if that means you have to have a, a day off between two and three, so be it. Because uh, you, you want to have the maximum audience you can for that. It, it would not be a sports media watch podcast if John didn't recommend putting something on ABC. So we will close with that. John, do you have anything else you'd like to close out the podcast with? Uh, just a note, obviously, the ESPN uh, layoffs are, are starting up. Um, front office sports reported this week that Chris Shelios will be part of that. I've seen some rumors about other uh, folks, but I'm not going to name them, obviously. Um, it'll be interesting to see what ESPN does here because they're going to be going after on-air folks. Uh, if your name is not Stephen A. Smith, Scott Van Pelt, you're probably not fully safe. We'll see what ESPN truly values from their on-air talent. There's a lot of talented people who are going to lose their jobs because ESPN doesn't know how to monetize being competent at calling a game. They only know how to monetize, you know, yelling and screaming about nonsense. So, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting. Remember, ESPN laid off Mike Soltis this time around. So if they're going to do that, they really have uh, no uh, particular uh, compunction about uh, betraying their most loyal employees. So it'll be a very interesting stretch here for the uh, worldwide uh, worldwide leader. I wonder if they've I wonder if they've uh, laid off the person who coined the term the worldwide leader in sports. They probably have. They probably laid <laughs> Dude, whoever that was off. Is that in the Miller book by any chance? I don't think he covers that. I'm not sure. <laughs> that seems like something that should be in there. Yeah, you know, I probably read like 20 pages of that book. Apologies to Jim Miller. Really? Yeah, I I haven't finished it, but I've read over half. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah it's, I, it's I, an interesting yeah. read. No, it is. Uh, it would well. I, I, it would be <laughs> if I read is. most of it. I've heard. I've heard it's an interesting read. Uh, you know, I, I assigned parts of it when I was uh, teaching, uh, but yeah, I see this. I see the book on on the yeah. shelf behind you. Yeah, yeah, that's like the only part of it that I've read. I'm sorry, Jim. It is. But, hey, I bought it. I mean, I bought it used, <laughs> but still, I bought it. You know. So there you go. I did my part. I did want to mention this. Uh, I'm so sick and tired of hearing about succession. Uh, I've never seen it, and I got to tell you, the people raving about it have ensured that I will never seek it out. Uh, I mean, this show is so annoying. They're always showing these GIFs and screenshots of random people whose faces I don't recognize because I don't watch the show. I assume that the guy in the DirecTV commercials is the main guy from the show. There's some guy in DirecTV commercials. Yes, yes. Yeah, Brian assume, Cox. Yeah. Okay. I mean, look, I, I'm never going to watch this show. I want to just be completely clear. <laughs> That's the new Ted Lasso for me. <laughs> Right, the very first podcast I did back when I was doing it with TJ, I I expressed my dislike of Ted Lasso. Add Succession to that. No to Succession. No to Ted Lasso. Right, I put uh, them in the Doctor Pimple Popper zone. Okay, there's just no way I'm ever watching those shows. I'll, I'll be honest, John. It takes a lot for me to to watch a scripted television series. You know, I really I'm I'm sports news sometimes reality TV, but to get me to watch a scripted TV show, it's got to be really good. And I have thoroughly enjoyed Succession. And I, I did actually see something on Twitter today. And I know you made this point at, at some point over the run of this podcast that 
it's the show everybody on twitter talks about mm-hmm. but no one actually watches yeah. it, that does have some truth i think um i hope i got these numbers right i'm 99 sure i did but um that the last episode of succession got 9 million viewers um i don't know over how many days but um maybe over like the week it like the last week it was released right um and other shows on hbo that you know i have not watched i have not heard nearly as much about um got like 30 million viewers in their some of their finales so um i mean it is kind of a bit of a media sensation uh, but hasn't really reached the uh broader audience outside of media world so you do have a point there but as someone who covers media i think you would really enjoy it you know i probably would but i'm so opposed to this overhyped nonsense every single person just gushing about this show absolutely not now i will say i did watch the first two seasons of barry Mm. Uh, i'm open to concluding barry um you know i haven't decided yet Uh, i just kind of figured I mean, spoiler alert, I suppose. I mean, what what a shame it would be if you were watching Barry and got it spoiled by my podcast. <laughs> but uh, the point where he kills like 30 people at the end of season two, uh, at that point, you're like, well, there's really no no other place they can go with this character. So I kind of lost yeah. interest after that. Barry and Breaking Bad are probably the only prestige TV shows that I ever got into. I just, there's something so obnoxious about prestige TV to me. There's just... Well, it's probably the name prestige oh, yeah. tv <laughs> yeah but i i can't i can't stand lowbrow tv like dr pimple popper and reality tv and i can't stand highbrow tv give me middle of the road give me so right down the middle how i met your mother and no i hate that i hate <laughs> shows like that so no, no definitely not well it's some sitcoms let's just say generally me, you're a sitcom guy give me 1990s sitcoms give me seinfeld frazier uh you know, Golden Girls, American Dad. I love American Dad. Mondays <laughs> See, on CBS. Is, this is this is why we could never have a conversation about anything other than sports on TV because I don't think I've watched a single one of those shows. Although I, I've seen Seinfeld. But... Yeah, Seinfeld. I was watching Seinfeld when I was a child. I was watching Seinfeld when I was new. And they were, I was like nine years old. It's, uh, every Thursday night, it was the most fun thing to do, watch Seinfeld. Didn't yeah. get all the jokes, but... <laughs> Uh, you do now, I'm sure. Uh, most of them. <laughs> most of them. Curb. Curb is not prestige TV, though. Curb your enthusiasm is not prestige TV. Yeah, it's bordering, though. It's bordering on it. There's nothing prestigious about Larry David. <laughs> he'd, be the first, but he'd be the first person to say that. All right, John. That seems like a good place to end. Um, why don't you give them the spiel about you know how to subscribe and yeah, of course. What, how to rate this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the SMW podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, don't hold my dislike of succession against me. Why don't you give us five stars if you like what we're doing? Uh, and uh, keep listening, of course. We'll be back here next week with more talk. The NBA Finals and Stanley Cup may very well be done by the time we come back here next week. The Stanley Cup probably will be. The NBA could be, too, if it goes only five games. So we'll be back. We'll have more talk about sports media. In the meantime, have a great week. We'll see you next week.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.